But as we come to chapter 4 in Matthew, we've seen uh, the glorious scene of Christ's temptation and his victory over the devil. And we turn a corner at this passage, and uh, if you're a, a student of the Gospels, if you've read through uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you understand that, that Matthew, he, he skips some events in some details, and that happens in all the various Gospels. Um, he, he skips over some things that, that, say, John writes about, and that's not that Matthew's trying to leave them out like he didn't believe they happened or they, they weren't important. But as we look at the Gospels, um, they have different emphases and different themes. Between Jesus' baptism and his return to Galilee, which we're going to see here, here's some of the major things that happen. And you can read these in the other three Gospel records. Um, Jesus calls his first disciples. He performs his first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Uh, he made a, a, an early trip to Jerusalem for a Passover feast. Uh, he exposed his jealousy for God's holiness by driving the money changers out of the temple. Um, he had a, his famous, maybe one of his most famous conversations in the middle of the night with a man named Nicodemus about being born again. And then he had another very famous conversation with a woman at the well where he told her about living water, in which if she partook of it, she would never thirst again. As he was speaking with the woman at the well, he was in Samaria. He had traveled north through Samaria. Uh, usually the Jews would travel around Samaria to go to points north, but he went through. He told his disciples plainly that he needed to do that. And of course, that conversation was one of the very reasons for doing that. But this is kind of where we pick up the story. Um, as Jesus has now traveled north, and uh, he's gone back up to Galilee, and we pick up the story where Matthew picks it up in verse number 12. So I'm just going to start reading in Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them has light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll stop reading there for today. And, uh, let me have a word of prayer before we get any further into this text. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these details that you've given us about your ministry, Jesus, your life, your, your footsteps. Uh, it, it makes the scripture come alive when we see these people and places, these events that were very real. These aren't just stories, words on a page that we're reading. They're an account, a true, an account, a true account. Uh, but mostly they're words that give life because of the author of life. And pray that we would see that in the scripture today. Be with us, O oh God, as we study. Thank you, Jesus. The major shift or drama that we see taking place in this passage is the transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. 
And uh, we find in the scripture that Jesus and John the Baptist were not at odds with one another. Uh, they weren't competing ministries. John was a, a true Old Testament prophet by every right. And his preaching and teaching was pointing to the Messiah. And Jesus was that Messiah and is that Messiah. So their ministries fit together like cogs on a gear. Uh, much later in Matthew, we're going to read and study as Matthew kind of points back to the imprisonment of John the Baptist and his execution. But for now, the important information that we need to know is that John had been carried off to prison and Jesus has traveled back now to Galilee where he begins a major part of his teaching ministry. It's like John's insight where he said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease, had come true. Uh, John knew that he was not the one. He just pointed to the one. He was not the way. He, he just made the path straight that would reveal the way. And now Jesus' ministry really begins to unfold. Even though all four of the gospel records were written under the inspiration of God, they, they seem to have different points of emphasis. Uh, the Apostle John is probably the most explicit uh, where he gives his emphasis in chapter 20, uh, where he says, uh, these are written that you might have life. Um, but he also wrote that there are many other words and works of Jesus, in fact, too many. He couldn't write about them all. But the ones that he wrote were written so that you might believe in Jesus Christ and believing you may have life in him. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't give us quite a, such an explicit purpose statement like John does, but he, he does give us a major point of emphasis. We've seen it already in the preaching of John the Baptist, and we see it now here in the words of Jesus. Uh, the passage before us today gives insight into the purpose of Jesus' teaching and miracle-working ministry. It was not a ministry with a, a purpose simply to extend kindness and benevolence. It was a ministry with a focus and a central theme or idea. This theme was also alluded to in the temptation of Jesus. What did Satan offer to Jesus if he would simply bow down and worship him? He offered him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, what did John preach repentance for? John came preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All throughout Matthew, we see references, allusions to, teaching on, and proclamation about the kingdom. Parables of the kingdom, revelation about the kingdom, prophecies concerning the future of the kingdom, and teaching about the present reality and the citizens of that kingdom. Here in this passage, uh, Matthew tells us how Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah concerning the coming of a great light. And we see that Jesus is that light. That light reveals the truth, uh, the truth which is good news. The gospel shines because of the light of Jesus. Uh, really, the whole ministry, life, death, burial, resurrection, it's the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done for us. And all of that centers around spreading this light of truth. Jesus did it in his words. He did it in his works. Uh, the rest of Matthew is really devoted to reflecting and spreading this light. So our big 
focus for today is this. The light of the gospel dawns with the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the glory of the good news and the king of the kingdom. We're going to see a few things, and we'll move through uh, some of this a little bit quickly. And uh, I want to get to kind of the big idea toward the end. But first we see a transition in ministry. If you can picture a, a map of, of Palestine uh, where Jesus went to be baptized, and let me think about this backwards, uh, was, was, and where he was tempted in the wilderness was kind of in the, the, the south and the east of Palestine. And where he's traveling now is sort of to the north and the west in Palestine. As Jesus traveled up through Samaria, that would have been up above Jerusalem, uh, over toward the Mediterranean Sea, and up on that uh, western side of the Jordan River. That's where he met the woman at the well. And he came near his hometown of Nazareth, where Joseph was from. We're told in Luke 4 that Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. He was even driven out after his sermon in the synagogue. If you read that passage in Luke 4, you can turn there sometime, uh, but Jesus compares himself to the prophet Elijah. He gives similarities about how Elijah was often rejected in Israel, but ministered to those on the outskirts. Likewise, Jesus was rejected in his very hometown, and he said that a prophet is not accepted in his own country. I want to read a portion from that scripture, Luke 4, beginning in verse 28. When they heard these things, this is after Jesus uh, had given a sermon from Isaiah, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. All of that, what takes place there, Jesus traveling from uh, his baptism, Jesus uh, going to Jerusalem, Jesus traveling through Samaria, and a lot of other details, all of that is wrapped up in Matthew's words that says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum uh, becomes somewhat of a home base for Jesus' ministry. This little city uh, saw a really concentrated amount of Jesus' teaching and his miracles. In fact, later, Matthew will even refer to it as Jesus' own city because he spent so much of his time in ministry there. Now, all of this, Jesus being rejected in his hometown, him going to this different region, all of this is sort of fitting. Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah 53 as one who would be despised and rejected. He would be cast out by his own people and minister to others. Uh, psalm 69, which is recognized as a messianic psalm, speaks of the Messiah being a foreigner to his own family and a stranger to his mother's children. John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that Jesus came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, of course, in a big picture sense, these things are not simply referring to Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, but being rejected largely by his own people, Israel. But we find then that this little piece of information about Jesus being kicked out and leaving Nazareth and going to Capernaum, it's sort of a type or a foreshadowing of the rest of Jesus' ministry. And this is no coincidence. 
Because as we keep reading, we find that this rejection did not take the Lord by surprise. Matthew points out that this fact was predicted all along. So we see, secondly, a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, as we read these verses where Matthew quotes uh, from the book of Isaiah and tells us how Jesus fulfills this, uh, we, we note that Matthew makes sure to point out the city of Capernaum uh, by the sea was of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those tribes had their inheritance in this very place, west of the Jordan, near the Sea of Galilee. And this isn't merely geographical information. He tells us for a purpose, and it's the purpose of fulfillment. Because as we read, Isaiah prophesied that these places, these tribes, would have an amazing thing happen. Isaiah 9 Verse 1 says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Here, uh, that great prophecy of hope, speaking of hope for those who were in captivity. That's who Isaiah was writing to. But this prophecy of hope extended far beyond that time. You see, at this point in Jesus' life, uh, the, the people of, of Naphtali, the people in that region, they had not been in captivity for hundreds of years. Uh, even though the ancient lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were once subjected to plundering, kidnapping, war, and desolation, Isaiah is pointing to something that would reach even far beyond the relief of that situation. Here, Matthew tells us that these regions get to see the greatest light, not just a light of coming back from captivity physically, but the light of the true light, the light of the world. They had been dwelling in darkness, but now the light had shone. Darkness is one of the first things that we see in Scripture. Uh, the universe and the world, at the onset of creation, was formless and, and dark. But what did God do? He, he gave light. He gave life. And he put order in creation. Here that theme continues only now the darkness is not physical, it's spiritual. There is a life, a light and order that only comes from knowing the giver of those things, and Jesus Christ is that one. We could put it this way. The whole world is in darkness, but the light has dawned in Jesus Christ. I want to give you some scripture to think about as you picture Jesus fulfilling this great prophecy of the light shining where there was darkness. Proverbs 2, 11 through 13, Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness. Proverbs 4, verse number 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Isaiah 5, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. 1 John again, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And finally, John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, this light that Capernaum saw this light that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali saw, the, the way of the sea, it was the true light. It was the true light. This light that Matthew is writing about, it, it is the true light. Uh, this light that we see when we read these sacred words of Scripture, it, it is the true light. And it's not an abstract uh, intellectual light. This light is a person, a, a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This light of the gospel was foretold in the prophets, but it truly dawns in Jesus Christ. He is the light, the glory of the gospel, the way, the truth, and the life. By quoting this prophecy, Matthew also brings out another thing worth noting. Uh, he writes that this region of Capernaum where Jesus is going is known as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. Now, what does that mean? Galilee was the name for the region uh, from at least the time of Joshua. It was settled by Zebulun and Naphtali at the time of the conquest. But we find through history, and if we were, if you're in Sunday school this morning, uh, we find that not only did God's people fail to drive out the inhabitants there, but they began to cohabit the land with many Gentile cities. This comes up again in the time of Solomon. Uh, Solomon had an interaction with Hiram, king of Tyre, and uh, the king of Tyre actually gave 20 of these Gentile cities of Galilee or around Galilee to Solomon at the time of the building of the temple. After the Assyrian conquest of the area around 720 BC, uh, this area became even more populated with Gentiles. And when you look at contemporary works, of history at the time of Jesus, we find that in the first century, this region was more than 50% Gentile. So the name Galilee of the nations was true in Isaiah's day, and it was really even more true by the time that Jesus arrived there. 
This is interesting because even though Jesus obviously came, as he said, to his own people first, and even though Matthew is the author with the most uh, distinctively Jewish interest, he points out all these ways in which Jesus' ministry seems to always be intended for a larger audience. Two things sort of bookend this theme of Matthew. After Jesus' birth, we have a, a visit by the Gentile Magi to worship Jesus. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we have the recording of the Great Commission, which calls for the Gospel to be spread in all nations. Now, you and I should rejoice in this. We shouldn't rejoice that Jesus' own people rejected him, but we should rejoice that it has always been part of God's plan to include us as Gentiles. We are not part of God's chosen people by birth or by nation, but we are grafted in and chosen by his grace. Now, we ought to have an eye to the promise that there is a believing Jewish remnant which one day will come to faith. But now our mandate as recipients of the gospel is to proclaim the light of Jesus to every tribe, to every tongue, and every nation. And we rejoice that Jesus has made a way for us in the gospel. For to each who receive his word, it could be said that we have seen a great light, and on us a light has dawned. Finally, we see a proclamation of authority. Verse number 17 in this passage says simply, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Next week, when we pick up in verse 18 and finish the chapter, we'll, we'll see more of the specific details of Jesus' ministry. Uh, but I want to finish here in verse 17 today. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Weeks ago, we talked about how, how Matthew kind of, he kind of organizes his writing around Narrative and then discourse. Narrative and then discourse. That is, he tells us about some, some things that Jesus did, places Jesus went, people he interacted with, and then after that, he gives us a teaching section. In a couple of weeks, we will start one of the most significant portions of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. But this little snippet here in verse 17 of Jesus' teaching is kind of a primary and central focus to his whole message. John proclaimed this same thing in the desert to prepare the way for Jesus, and now Jesus proclaims it as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we covered that section in John's ministry, we talked a lot about repentance. Uh, we saw uh, this message from John as repentance was not simply good works. Otherwise, the, the scribes and the Pharisees would have had repentance nailed down. Rather, repentance is a, a fundamental change in disposition toward God. And here, just like for John, Jesus says it's because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, forewarning, the idea of the kingdom is by far the most prominent theme in Matthew. So we're going to hear about it a lot as we study through it. Uh, he uses the word kingdom, mostly referring to the kingdom of God in heaven, uh, 55 times at least in his gospel writing. The theme of the kingdom is also perhaps one of the most mysterious 
and maybe misunderstood themes in all of Scripture. Uh, I remember in my sophomore year of college, uh, having to write a position paper. I was, we were talking about this, Lizzie and I, earlier uh, this week. We had to write a position paper on what, what, what was the kingdom of God, and specifically, is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? And now, a few years later, well, really, it's more than a few years now, time gets away from you. But as I think back on that, I feel really bad for that professor because it was a big class and he had to read through all of these college sophomores, you know, grand ideas on what all these things meant. The Gospels use the terms uh, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God a lot, and they also use them interchangeably. Um, I don't see any reason to try to introduce uh, some significance into the different uses of the term. As I said before, the, the most likely reason that Matthew uses kingdom of heaven is because the Jewish authors often substituted something else for God's name in order to never be guilty of blaspheming it. But even Matthew was not totally consistent on this. Um, if you look at Matthew 19, we'll get ahead of ourselves for a minute. We'll get to this in a matter of months maybe, but... Uh, Matthew 19, 23 and 24, you'll, you'll recognize this passage. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus there uses those same two terms and he holds them in equality. And uh, some scripture writers simply use the term the kingdom, or the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of the Father, and they never give any clarification or obvious reasons to define those things differently. What does all that mean? Well, the main question that plagues us because of all that is, what is the kingdom? What's, what's the meaning of this? The Bible seems to speak of the kingdom in many different facets, in many different lights. In my study, I came across... Uh, really helpful section, and instead of just rewording this and trying to make it my own, I just want to quote from a, a book I read uh, by George Ladd. It gives some good comparisons here. And if you want these scripture references, uh, you want to jot them down, you can come see me later. The kingdom is a present reality, and yet it is a future blessing. It is an inner spiritual redemptive blessing, which can be experienced only by way of new birth, and yet it will have to do with the government of the nations of the world. The kingdom is a realm into which men enter now, and yet it is a realm into which they will enter tomorrow. It's at the same time a gift of God, which will be bestowed by God in the future, and also one which must be received in the present. Now, when we read things like this, at first it only seems to add confusion to the topic. If the kingdom is all of these things, how can we ever make sense of it? What significance does it have for us, especially now. And we alluded to this when we looked at John's message, but I really believe one of the keys to understanding this is the definition of the word kingdom. Now think with me for a minute. When you think of a kingdom, what do you think about? Now, for instance, I grew up in Groton, Vermont, which is in the southern tip of Vermont's northeast kingdom. So that's a region. Uh, England, Scotland, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are, are known as the United Kingdom. Uh, we might think of the, the Kingdom of Denmark or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or a, a, another thing. And when we think of these kingdoms, we think of 
a region, specifically a place, a land. Perhaps secondly in our mind, when we think of a kingdom, we think of the subjects, those who are under the rule of a king. But I would actually suggest that in Scripture, these ideas probably are not what it is intended to convey. In fact, thinking about the kingdom of God in these terms is probably a barrier to our understanding. As we read through Scripture, we see that the primary definition for kingdom in both the Old and New Testament is not a land or a place, and it's not simply a people or subjects. The first and biggest definition of the word kingdom is really kingship. That is rulership, authority, sovereignty, and reign. Now, if we look at Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, and we will see a lot of it in Matthew, uh, and we try to def define the kingdom as either a place or a people, we often get confused. But look at a couple of scriptural examples. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, if the word kingdom simply means a place or subjects, how does that make sense? How does the place rule over all? It's not the place or the people, it's the kingship. Another, uh, Psalm 145, verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Now, in this example, understand that as part of poetry, David is speaking in parallels. So kingdom at the end of one line and power at the end of the other are parallels. They're synonyms. If a kingdom meant a place or people, that poetry wouldn't make sense. But God's kingdom and his power are really synonymous there. One of Jesus' parables makes this really clear as well. We can't go into the fullness of the parable, but just to read the introduction. As they heard these things, Luke 19, uh, beginning of verse 11, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. Now, how does a person go somewhere to receive a kingdom and then come back? Did he bring a big chunk of land with him? Did he bring back simply a big group of people? No, he wasn't lacking the land or the people. He was receiving a commissioning, an authority, a rulership. The kingdom means God's rule, his authority, or his reign. So how does that clarify things for us? Well, it brings a lot of significance to Jesus' teaching and to John's call to repentance. If they're saying that the kingdom of God is coming near, meaning God's authority to rule and reign is here, then that makes the call to action much more powerful. God's authority, his rulership is drawing near. And it draws near here primarily in the person of Jesus. And that demands repentance. This also helps us in a lot of other places. Uh, we're called in the gospel to receive the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Are we to receive a place or are we to receive the church? No, we're to receive or recognize the kingship, the authority of God. 
When we pray after the Lord's Prayer, which we'll learn about in a few weeks, we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we're not praying for a physical throne to come down from heaven right here in our midst. We're praying for God's rulership and his authority to be recognized and submitted to on earth as it is in heaven. When the Bible speaks of entering into God's eternal kingdom, that means is that while God's authority and rule are very real now, we simply don't experience the fullness of that blessing yet. But one day we will. So we enter into it. We accept it and receive his kingdom or his kingship now by faith. One day we'll experience it in full. Now, this last point is a proclamation of authority. How is this a proclamation of authority? Because the proclamation of, of the kingdom is just that. It's proclaiming the authority of the king. The authority of the king to both bless and to curse. Uh, the authority of the king to rule and to reign. The authority of the king, in the case of King Jesus, to save all who will come to him. Now, if you have your outline handout, I wanted to close this morning with some basic thoughts. Again, this is, this is just basic. It's not all-encompassing. There's a lot of details here. But some basic thoughts to remember as we see the term kingdom in the book of Matthew. You'll see them as a fill-in-the-blanks in your outline. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, firstly, is the reign of the king. It's the reign of the king. God's kingdom extends to people and places, but it primarily is his rulership, his authority, his kingship, which is completely real right now. Jesus is that king, which is why the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 about Jesus and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Another thing, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is both already and it is not yet. In Matthew, we will see plenty of references to future aspects of the kingship of Jesus. And we won't experience all of that fullness until after the second coming of Christ. But more than that, and more often, Jesus speaks about his kingdom being a present, actual reality here and now. And if his authority and reign are real now, it calls us to action. It first calls us to repentance and faith, and then it calls us as well to obedience. If Jesus is the king and he has this authority, he is one to be obeyed. In fact, all of the Sermon on the Mount, really, as we'll see, is a treatise on what life looks like in light of the kingdom or the kingship of God. Right now, the authority of God is seen mostly in his people. But the book of Revelation tells us that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God in Christ. That is, one day there will be no lesser kingships. There will be no earthly kingdoms to divide and to be ruled by men and to compete with God's kingship. The authority, both real and experienced, will be Christ's in that day. Lastly, the kingdom of God is most visible in the words and the works of Jesus. If Jesus is the king, then his kingship or his kingdom is most visible in what he says and what he does. How did he close his walk 
on earthly life. Before his ascension, he told his followers, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and teach all nations. The kingdom of God is clear and visible in the life and light of Jesus. We often talk about building the kingdom of God, living for the kingdom of God, and seeking the kingdom of God. But we can only do all these things inasmuch as we reflect the life of Jesus and his teaching. We don't need to reinvent Jesus' kingdom. His kingship is forever. May we reflect his kingship, rather, to a world that is walking in darkness, which brings us back to that prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Our eyes have been opened. Darkness has been turned to light. Those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. Chaos has been turned to order because of the king. And Jesus, at this time, began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.